I knew the case was going to be special the minute he walked into my office. He was beautiful. All right, this is Wheel of Genre, the podcast for people who like books and don't mind spoilers. I'm Zach. I'm Bob. I'm Justin. We are back with The Detective's Tale, Dan Simmons' Hyperion. And we've been looking at each of these in terms of, you know, specific genres that they might participate in. Maybe they double dip into two different swimming pools. Maybe they don't really seem to clearly dip into any genre tradition at all. But I think this one really ha- lays mm-hmm. everything bare in the title. For the sure. Detective's Tale. And, and The Long Goodbye. There's this, this one is full of references that I feel like are very close to what we've been doing and have re- d- directly referenced a few books we've read for this podcast. Like The Long Goodbye is a Raymond Chandler book. This mentions William Gibson at one point. It's written like a Dashville Hammett or Raymond Chandler book. This one was really engaging genre and trying to get people to participate and recognize certain pieces of these different genres. Yeah, and it's like a detective story, but also it's just straight out of cyberpunk, you know, which I think yeah. was contemporaneous with this book. It's really just like, this is Dan Simmons does cyberpunk for me. Yeah, for sure. You know, thinking yeah. of books he's read in the past, so like Snow Crash. You know, the, the William Gibson tale, cyberpunk, you know, the original cyberpunk story. This this is absolutely right in there. You know, you've got the hacker whiz BB Serbinger, is it? Or Serbringer or something like that. I can't call his exact name. We've got BB Serbinger, so named because his buttocks were so tight and so small. Like a two like BBs. Yeah. Fair enough. And he's on a cyberpunk mission going off into the datum sphere. And, you know, it's. It's very, very cyberpunk, but also, yeah, very, very much a hard-boiled detective story as well. Did you guys, did you guys catch the the William Gibson? Yeah, he calls it a Gibsonian matrix. That, mm, that kind of, yeah, yeah. Basically, the all thing, the internet that they that they go into. It's a Gibsonian matrix, which I think is interesting, not only because he's telling us that you know it's a shorthand for being like, well, how does this work? Well, you've read Gibson, <laughs> you've read Neuromancer, yeah. but but also, I believe this predates the Matrix, which is really modeled off of Gibson as well. So I, I just thought it was like a fun two-way connector point to call it a Gibsonian matrix. They also make Gibson a real character, like a character who would be a hacker too, because they call the Gibsonian matrix as if it's based on the book. But then at one point they also say, BB's talking when he's about to hack in and get the information for John Keats. And he says, there's a legend that Cowboy Gibson did it before the core seceded, but nobody believes it. And yeah. Cowboy disappeared. As if William Gibson was really his own character from his book. That was great. Yeah. Well, this is a movie actually makes multiple times. So we have Cowboy Gibson. We also mm. have Keats, mm-hmm. the real life poet who's also a cybrid. Which is, yeah, which is an organic Salmon body that's a no, host myself, to no. an AI consciousness. Yeah. Yeah, kind of like an out uh, real world outreach of the core. Well, so the idea speak. is they're trying to like you know bring Keats back to life, reincarnate Keats in a way yeah. as a you know what they call a cybrid, right? So this guy Johnny walks in to her office. She knows it's going to be an interesting case, and he's a very beautiful man and all this stuff. It turns out not a man at all. Actually, he's a cybrid, which is a yeah. cyborg human hat. Really spinning the femme fatale model of the beautiful so lady great. walks into the office. But I did learn this is actually a term. I am unashamedly reading a book about, you know, kind of like an academic book on detective fiction right now. Cool. And 
en fatale is an accepted term because there is a tradition of female detectives. You know, if I was a better prepared podcast host, I would have those names in my back pocket to talk about, but <laughs> they exist. And yeah, and, and it's, yeah, a, a beautiful man walks in, a handsome man walks in. Yeah. Such a smart idea that he's doing, Dan Simmons is doing, because he wanted to do some sort of hard-boiled detective fiction, and he's got the home fatale, which was the stand-in here for like what we've seen in most of the movies are a male detective with a femme fatale. But now he's switched it, even though it's following a tradition. And it's great because now he can bring in John Keats, who is kind of a more beautiful, more sensitive, appears like that, the damsel in distress at the beginning of The Long Goodbye, the original novel and the original movie. So it's very cool that he's worked out this this kind of traditionally masculine genre and then worked in John Keats somehow to fill in the home fatale. And the fact that it's John Keats being the home fatale <laughs> is super cool. I don't I am not sure if we've read a book where you have these kinds of resurrections of historical figures. It's not historical fiction in the sense of we're going back to the setting where the historical figure is natural or we know what they're going to do. It's we're plucking this figure out of their context and putting them somewhere else and skewing them in a way because it's not literally John Keats, at least for most of the story, it's not literally John Keats. But well, it no, is because he remains hooked into the technical. You know, fun, John Keats, the cybrid, is essentially just a, an avatar, really who can move around in the web, but fundamentally, primarily exists in the technical as well, an AI who, for whom mere human consciousness would be you know, an, inf an infinitesimally small fraction of what he currently has access to in terms of knowledge in the datum sphere. Even though he's an AI and should have a great deal of knowledge, that is very limited too. It's like the Technocore has made him, he compares himself to being a pet who's just let out to walk by the techno core. Well, he's not yeah, exactly I mean, sure it John be, Keats. Yeah. It might be interesting at this point, like maybe like just stay like, well, what is the case, right? He comes in, Ron Lamia knows this is going to be a very interesting case. And she, you know, it, she said, all right, well, it's going to be, he says, well, I want to, you know, I want to be to investigate. Uh, she's a private investigator, so I want you to investigate a murder. And she's like, oh, great, you know, perfect. That's, that's right. That's, that's what I do. He's been murdered. I was. Yeah. Uh, dun, turns dun. out he's been <laughs> murdered. And then we're like, what? You've been murdered? And he's like, oh, yes, yes. I'm actually a cybrid. Well, that's the <laughs> first way that the story is really spins the detective template. That the victim walks into the detective and says, yeah, I've been killed. Can you help me? It's almost like a supernatural tale, except mm. it's, it's cyberpunk, you know? Yeah, I, I've, so I, so I, I can't remember exactly what, but I think there's a similar story of like someone's, I want you to investigate a murder, but it's not happened yet. Is that? Minority support, I think. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. In, in any case, it's very much like a cyberpunky sort of trope in itself. You know, I don't think it's necessarily mm. very original to Dan Simmons in this case. Although maybe I think some referencing came after I do, and I don't know. In any case, he's they're investigating his murder, and it turns out that his body, his incarnation, is like was was attacked in the web. But he doesn't know by whom, because when he was attacked, you know, he's he's died in a sense, but somehow his, his consciousness and all of his memories stuff have been re-uploaded onto a new Keats cybrid, except for it's not really the same, it's just all the data's been transferred, with the exception of the five days leading up to 
his murder. Yeah. And then the, the, that's where Ron Lady comes in to investigate in the web to try and understand how this came about and how it came about that he was killed, who was associated with and sort of tracing things back and ultimately trying to figure out what the, you know, why he was killed. And, you know, it's not clear why he's killed. Like some of the options are that maybe it could be one of the AIs somehow wants to kill him, but that doesn't really make sense because why wouldn't they kill him in the data sphere where they could have a far more lethal effect? Well, what are some of the other reasons he might be killed? Like some kind of just hate crime on cybrids or what? And he's got no clear ideas, essentially. It seems yeah. to be a motiveless attack. There's there's leads, but not necessarily motives. He's mm-hmm. clearly just learned something, very similar to the previous story we talked about, and maybe Rachel learned something, and that's why she was afflicted in the way she was with the aging backwards with Merlin's sickness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems to be he's learned something, and then he's been killed to have his memories wiped so that he can't reveal what he's learned, but we don't know what that is. Maybe to help exemplify what happens and what the leads are, I actually took a note here about a detective fiction trope that Braun Lamia engages with, which is talking through what she knows and doesn't know as a rhetorical strategy in which the author can help the reader understand how much evidence we actually have and what the unknown still are. This is something yeah. we've seen in My well, Camera. My Camera. Uh, we saw it in Asimov's detective fiction, robotics books. Caves of uh, Steel, yeah. Naked Sun, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. So Braun says, I walked back towards the library, paused a minute in the busy Farcaster Plaza, and stood there a minute. Scenario so far. Johnny had met the Templar or been approached by him, either in the library or outside when he arrived in mid-morning. They went somewhere private to talk, the bar, and something the Templar said surprised Johnny. A man with a Q, possibly a Lusian, showed up and took over the conversation. Johnny and Q left together. Sometime after that, Johnny Farcast to TC squared and then Farcast from there with one other person, possibly Q or the Templar, to Madia, where someone tried to kill him. Did kill him. Too many gaps. Too many someones. Not a hell of a lot to show for a day's work. So we have suspects. We have a trail in which the victim travels, but not, not identities, not motives, not any real reason. It's all it's all jumbled too because the the there's someone who's stalking Johnny who is who comes to his hotel who seemed to have hurt him the first time and has come to hurt him again. Braun tracks this guy down, finds out it's another cyber cyborg cybrid, and that that cybrid we later find out was actually his bodyguard, I believe, when he yeah. went to the Shrike Church to apply to go to Hyperion. So for some reason, his bodyguard turns on him. Or at least that's how Braun interprets it. So she murders that bodyguard. Then the bodyguard are... self-destructs. Like she tries to come and then well, he yeah, self-destructs. Yeah. So they, After they're fighting. After an epic kung fu fight, I might add. <laughs> that was a great fight. Yeah. Chase uh, scene as well. Chase scene the, and a kung fu fight. Love the three-fingered heart death punch where oh, he tries to God. get her. Just missed that. my heart. So yeah, he, he self-destructs in this beautiful blue flame. It's like butane. Like someone just suddenly is com- like a butane tank combusting, turns into blue flame, and then it eats his whole body. But then they are attacked later by the people from the Shrike Church, and these people are extremely violent. They finally get the information out of them. When they go to the Shrike Church, they ask, why? What do you want with me? Why do you want me here? And they say, well, you signed up to be a pilgrim, Johnny. Why have you changed your mind? We don't like it when people change their mind. You have one week to tell us if you're going to go or if you're not going to go. But that really doesn't answer our questions until these other mysteries start 
working their way into Braun and Johnny when they when they go to this recreation of Earth. I feel like that's when they start to realize what he knew before and why he was attacked and what he has to do next. So maybe this is a good point to talk about what this story adds to our understanding of the larger overall Hyperion tale. Like we go to Old Earth, for example. So we've previously been led to believe through Poet that Earth has been destroyed. He wrote a series of books called The Dying Earth, for example, and he lived on it. Previously, we had thought that some kind of like black hole had opened in Earth's core and swallowed the planet whole. But it doesn't seem to be the case. Or maybe maybe it is still the case. Maybe there's a new old Earth. We're not really sure, but there's in some sense an Earth that exists and that is hooked up to the Farcaster web, but not hooked up to the Farcaster web. Somehow they get there. Outside of the web, yeah. Somehow they get there. The Earth is very odd because it's in a different star cluster. So it can't, unless they moved it from our solar system to another place. And also it's it's from, I think, 1756. or It's from like 300 years of our present time ago. It's when Keats was alive, right before he died. For some reason, they've restructured this Earth to be during Keats's time. Yeah, they seem to have this idea of like, I don't know, like finishing Hyperion here as well. Like, well... You know, we can recreate maybe his all of his um, environments, and then we can reincarnate him, and he might just be able to create what keeps created. But if he, you know, it's, I think it's BB says that if he ever actually goes into the real world, all of these, you know, reincarnated people, I can't remember exactly how it's put, will eventually go insane. So I guess the, they recreated old Earth. It seems to to house Keats, the the reincarnated Keats. So I almost like he's again like he's a pet, like he's an animal, like he's some kind of novelty figure like a, a sort of a madame two swords comes to life it's like a human zoo in a, in a really limited way because the decision he makes is to become human to become the true keats yeah because he couldn't get to hyperion without becoming human because somehow hyperion is outside of the access of the technical okay so yeah. then he loses his contact as an ai he's then a limited just conscious being yeah you think of it as like it's outside the Wi-Fi signal, so he's got to go on airplane <laughs> yeah. mode and save his Spotify albums onto his hard drive, so to speak. But yeah. for some reason, that's a huge threat. I don't understand why it's such a big threat, because at that point, he has to be murdered. Everyone starts chasing him, and they successfully murder him. And it's tragic, because it's like the idea of, oh, Keats is finally blooming, becoming a real poet, and then it dies from tuberculosis, very young. And this is happening again with this this other new Keats. We're excited to see, oh, this AI finally gets to be a real boy, gets to be a real person, yeah. and then is murdered in real life and cannot be recovered. I mean, it, it seems that Hyperion itself poses a threat to the technical in, in, because fundamentally, it, because it's outside of the access of the technical, it conflicts with the technical's primary aim. So we learn a lot more about the ten- technical in this story, technical being us, the conglomeration of AIs, I guess you would say, that like, is the technical. And he he talked about learning that actually there are three factions within the technical. There are the uh, stables, who are the oldest group, and they see the AI and human beings working in tandem, and that they're being purposely symbiotic, and that's the best thing. And he even mentioned in this book that it's foolish. BB says it's foolish to worry about the AIs taking over because if they, you know, they could have done that for thousands, you know, for millennia, and they've not done. So it seems like a silly thing to worry about. But we learn in this story that actually there is another group of another couple of groups in the story where the, the volatiles who want to eradicate mankind essentially think that mankind is surplus during requirements, but that the more powerful group in the technocore it seems now is what they're called the Ultimates. 
who essentially trying to bring about the ultimate consciousness, essentially to, to bring about God, to have perfect predictive powers so that they know fu- the future perfectly. They said that they know like 99.99995% with certainty what's going to happen in the future. But the only thing stopping them from being the ultimate intelligence, from having a complete perspective on the world is Hyperion. It's a, a variable that they can't account for, can't control. And that's what Hyperion is. It's this glitch in their ultimate intelligence. It's the thing that's stopping them from doing this. So Hyperion is, you know, represents a massive threat to them because he, you know, he's ultimately a threat to the ultimate goal of perfect predictive powers. And the specific glitch in their predictive algorithm is the time tombs. So yeah. the time tombs are traveling backwards. We don't know what's inside of it. There's a great quote. The future that sent back the time tomb seems to be very much open for creation. You can kind of think of this as like the visions of Paul Atreides or maybe even Leto the giant worm. You know, in the far, far distant future, there's multiple outcomes that could be happening. And we don't know which outcome is sending back the time tombs. So here's a quote. The result has been two futures, two realities, if you will, one in which the Shrike Scourge, soon to be released on the web and interstellar humanity, is a weapon from the core-dominated future, a retroactive first strike from the Volatiles who rule the galaxy millennia hence. The other reality sees the Shrike invasion, the coming interstellar war, and the other products of the Time Tomb's opening as a human fist struck back through time. A final twilight effort by the ousters, ex-colonials, and other small bands of humans who escaped the volatiles extinction programs. Which I love because what you have with the time tombs now is a kind of Schrodinger's cat box, you know? And it seems to be that whatever's inside of it is either living or dead, as Schrodinger's cat is. And it's not until we see it that that future becomes actualized. It's once it opens that's when we know what the real reality is. Yeah. yeah. And it also opens up kind of what we were talking about last episode in terms of, you know, is the Shrike potentially a benevolent force for mankind? Right? Like, is the Shrike, does he represent mankind's ultimate doom? Or is the the fact that the Shrike and Hyperion as a planet in general is this sort of a, a secret, like a rent in the entire predictive fabric of the core's existence, is that, that unpredictability, the one thing that is sustaining mankind against the you know, tyranny of, of the technical and its ultimate you know, intelligence. And like you said, we don't know. And I think that we aren't really giving it, and I think that we aren't really given any good answers or like contextual clues about what that answer could be. Because what we see in the Shrike is him going around murdering people, sticking them on a tree, hanging out with immortal cultish you know, people in book one, we we see the strike that doesn't seem to be good by any means. However, we do see a more human side of the Shrike church in this story. Like instead of them just saying no to Saul Weintraub, we actually get some dialogue with the Shrike church here. And they do seem to be, I don't want to say reasonable people, but I'll say they don't seem to be super villains. They don't seem to be like a death cult per se. They seem to be people who have a very clear idea of like the nature of reality and the Shrike's role in it, even if they don't know which Shrike is coming back. We're given some, but we still have all these mysteries. John, you mentioned last a couple of episodes ago about Keats's idea of negative capability, and now we're looking at these these the Schrodinger's 
cat idea, which, you know, the cat is both dead and alive until either one can be confirmed. So both realities are true. I wonder what Dan Simmons is trying to get at, where we, we have all of these things. We're moving forward in time. We're moving backward in time. We're using negative to create something. You know, something is coming out of nothing. And then we have two possibilities that both exist at the same time, where the Technocore has destroyed everything and where the Alsters have destroyed everything. Well, I think, I don't know. I think it's a very similar issue to, you know, I had to keep harking back to it, but it, it, these issues do seem very similar to some that are brought up in Dune. Which is, you know, the threat of total knowledge is, you know, total knowledge is a threat to life. You know, life requires a certain degree of indeterminacy. If you have complete, 100% accurate predictive powers of the future, you also have, you know, there's not really any anything else to live for. Everything is already predetermined. So I think it, it represents a threat to life and to vitality. And, you know, that's what is represented in Dune. That's why, you know, later, later, the second always refrains from completely fulfilling, predicting the accurate future. And why, you know, Paul recoils from his predictive faculties and is unwilling to accept the burden of that prescience because somehow total knowledge is just opposed to life and that human life can't continue without some degree of indeterminacy. So I think that's why we might see the Shrike and then by extension, your know, poetry, you know, the Hyperion, the unfinished poetry, the thing that's always necessarily unfinished, necessarily always like mysterious and, you know, dark around the edges and fading off into oblivion eventually, because it, it keeps vitality going rather than bringing the world on, as it were, to, to a stultification to it. So stop. So I wonder if that's kind of what the Shrike represents and what Hyperion, you know, is all about, this, this necessary indeterminacy that without which, you know, life would cease to have vitality it would just be a static thing reminds me of i have no mouth and i must scream yeah when am becomes you know total it can manipulate any reality it can manipulate anything it knows everything with absolute certainty and it's so angry that it exists because it is the technicore that knows everything it is totally static and so because humans created it and gave it this kind of impetus or this 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 obsession with knowing all mm. It just hates being alive, so it tortures hum- humanity for revenge. Yeah, I mean, and that's like one argument I've heard, you know, for like why God would, cre- a perfect being would create the world. Maybe so that it can actually experience, have experiences and surprise, you know, surprise itself. I think it's very similar to like Hindu theology of like, you know, the world is sort of the play of the, the, the Brahman or whatever, the single being, because that's the only way it has to experience itself. Like it can't experience itself. Like God couldn't experience himself because it's totality. He has to be rendered partial and incomplete and therefore necessarily like indeterminate to some degree in order to have vitality to have life so this seems to be on the side of life you know i think i don't know i think there's an idea of that we we're not really sure what we want as human beings we think we want to know everything but i think if we did know everything we we very soon regret that state of being we seem very bored and dissatisfied if everything was perfectly determined already there's a quote john where they he's referencing norbert weiner and he says quote can God play a significant game with his own creature? Can any creator, even a limited one, play a significant game with his own creature? And I guess that is kind of what the core is grappling with. I like the characterization of the core as multiple, with different warring factions and even with different individuals within the core. We don't give a, I don't think we get a good sense of how many there are, but I think that most conceptions in SF of AI 
are of the totality AI. There's Skynet, there's AM, there's, you know, just the one artificial intelligence that rules everything. And I think that you see this in the real world too, where people are like, oh, chat GPT is going to take over. Is chat GPT sentient? Is it, you know, running things behind the, you know, you just see all this stuff about it. But I think that it's actually maybe, I don't want to say more accurate, but I'll say a much more interesting and likely true prediction. It seems analogous to like a sort of polytheism rather than a monotheism. Like, you know, I think there's definitely a strong monotheistic strand in the previous tale, you know, with the shrine being represented almost as like the God of Abraham that, you know, gives commandments from on high, which are inexplicable to mere human intelligence. And the yeah. you know directives that need to be blindly followed, whereas here there's very much like a, a polytheistic like struggle for power, and mankind's situation in this tale seems to be analogous to like the human beings and the gods in in you know ancient Greek theology, where you know what there's always a sort of play where like you know maybe Odysseus chooses to be human because you know it's only as a human being that you can experience you know life and experience sort of joy and sadness and all of these these aspects you know the idea that mankind needs you know meat sustaining whereas gods can be satisfied by you know bones alone so the idea that, that you know similar to maybe to this what the stables argue this one group this one faction in the technical where they say there's a necessary symbiosis of you know ai and mankind and the opposite group deny that completely they want the, the tyranny the complete you know tyranny of the ai at the expense of mankind but it's not so. a unipolar tyranny it's not one ai above all it's really like a faction of ai it's like an oligarchy. Well, ai above mankind or yeah, yeah, above mankind. Expense sure, of mankind. Sure. yeah it's interesting how you, you you compared the shrike as a kind of like monotheistic vision because in the scholar's tale yeah like we get this idea of the shrike issuing these commandments it's really the only time we hear the shrike speak if it is indeed the shrike speaking and it's in a very monotheistic tone it's the god addressing their servant or there's, you know, but other models of the Shrike play it as a kind of like Terminator model. You know what I mean? Like, like we have the AI of the future, the Skynet, if you will, sending back an agent, which is part of that, you know, like the Terminator is part of Skynet, but you wouldn't say the Terminator is Skynet. It's a product of Skynet. It's in some way cut off from its maker. And I feel like the Shrike too is portrayed in that way as like not not identical but a creation cut off and and of course this is no way to pin down the shrike as any one thing i'm just thinking about like the kind of models we use to you know read it and talk about it in the story like a rogue agent or just separate a different consciousness that's independent 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 okay yeah it makes me think about neuromancer too with the the two halves of the ultimate ai which i think would be similar to the god ai happening here where wintermute is trying to take over neuromancer or trying to reconvene with neuromancer as it becomes a powerful enough ai to create a whole new plane of existence this is much more oppressive where it wants to wipe out all other planes and only have its own so even though it seems like it would start out as an oligarchy if you have an oligarchy that becomes all powerful all-knowing it kind of becomes just one consciousness so it also eliminate any individuals in in their in their group Mm. well it does 
get to the point of why they created the cybrids in the first place. Like they talk about how when you create a cybrid, you recreate the kind of maybe you could say like the hyper specific personalities from the core's past through critical biographies, through their productive work, etc. What you get is a kind of different perspective, you know, to add to the multitude of voices that are speaking all at once within the core. It's really cool idea, I thought. And I think that I don't want to push this button too far, but I do think that it's why we read biographies of people. You know what Hmm. I mean? Like, or read, you know, the complete written works of someone so that when you're making a decision, when you are experiencing your life, you can have their voice or your reconstruction of their voice talking in your head as a kind of like alternate perspective. What would Achilles do? What would Achilles do? Yeah. I ask myself that every day. Rage is the answer. (laughs) Guys, I have a proposition for you. I have been thinking about this book. And, you know, a lot of times when we talk about SF, we talk about a kind of like, you know, what is what is the point in which this world diverges from reality? What is the author trying to explore? And I really don't think there's any single one in the Hyperion books. I feel like we're not really we're not really in reference to this world as a kind of like exploring an alternate idea. So for a while I was like, this book might have more in common with a fantasy novel, but I'm going to hold that thought because I really think that what Simmons is doing is a kind of like meta writing upon science fiction and upon genre literature. So in the sense of like folding in all of these elements retelling certain stories, you know, and the more research I've done, the more I've learned that a lot of these stories really have precedence in other science fiction tales. And and yeah, I think that what's going on here isn't so much the kind of like heart of what people come to SF for in the sense of like one idea explored and drawn out the implications, but rather really a cultural production, a kind of singular vision of SF and genre fiction into one creation. Yeah, I mean, it reminds me of, like, I know you've drawn this distinction in the past, Zach, of like, you know, I think you might see this as like a late genre piece that is, you know, at once played out the genre conventions, but in such a way that it has a larger meta point to make about that genre and, you know, the state of it and where it's heading. So I, I definitely see that aspect of it. In terms of like what's changed in this story, like there's not one simple inversion. Like you might say maybe in, for example, the Savala's Tale, there's the simpler version of like, oh, it's a regular story, except for she's aging backwards. And that's sort of the twist. But here it just here is represented as a future, right? Our future. You know, we are on old earth right now. And, you know, there are loads of I mean, Keats is the most obvious one, but it's very clear throughout the whole book that we're building on the history of this world that we inhabit right now. And this represents thousands of years in the future that what could uh, uh, one theory of what the direction in which mankind could head it so that seems to me like what what the sort of imaginative sort of not gimmick but that seems to me what's going on here right? here's one possible future of mankind yeah well it's hard to it's hard to look at something like the priest's tale or the soldier's tale and be like simmons truly believes that this is what the future will look like now that being said the idea of like ousters you know outside people who are invading upon the kind of stable civilization is a trope that goes back all the way to the Roman Empire and very likely before. Yeah, not even very likely, certainly before. So it's like, you know, you can look at the distance past. I mean, you don't have an in-group without an out-group, you know? Yeah, and and project out into the future of what this will look like in the setting of space. Yeah, yeah. But but then it's also like, 
how do you reconcile the poet's tale with that? To say that art will never change, that the great poet will always be handcuffed to the to the market, handcuffed you know, to the work. Yeah, he simultaneously like has no one point and is willing to kind of like broadly scan over everything and make and, and kind of comment on everything. There's no. Well, I mean, it seems to be like quite common in sci-fi that, you know, it really just represents like an expansion of current world. Like it just puts us in a much larger time frame in by comparison to which we seem relatively small, right? Instead of a book that's contemporary and not a sci-fi, which takes place within, you know, makes prosaics of everyday life very much the thing itself. Whereas here, like we're just merely one small speck on a large, large timeline of you know tens of thousands of years, in which we we're there. You know, we're there in old Earth. We're somewhere between Keats and the evacuation of old Earth. We're somewhere between the fall of the Roman Empire and the Technicolor. But we are there. There's there's a space for us here right now in this book, but it just represents such a exploded, such a, a macroscopic view of the situation and that seems to be what sci-fi in, in many cases does offer right it always takes place in a future but very often like a possible future i've been thinking about what dan simmons is doing too and i really started thinking about it in this detective one about what he's accomplishing and how he's thinking about sci-fi and how he's thinking about genre because there are so many genres in this and people have tried to do that and it's i haven't seen it work very well but here it's working extremely well, where you throw in lots of different genres, you make them interact, you try and tell different stories. He is doing something that I'm loving. And I think because when he references these things, when he references William Gibson, he's read it. He's probably read Neuromancer many times. He's probably read all of these different stories, and he loves to play in these stories. And it made me start thinking about, I was really impacted by John Keats playing the damsel in distress. I know that sounds a little silly, but it made me think of like the the Robert Frost quote about writing poetry without rhyme or without form is like playing tennis without a net. Yeah. It's just wild. You're just throwing the ball wherever you want. And it made me think about like, if you have a hard-boiled detective tale, you need the damsel to come in. But now our hard-boiled detective is a woman. So he put John Keats in that role because he needed to rhyme almost. He, He wants to use the genre and he needs to find something to fit the right way. And he wanted someone, he, he's, he's got all of these things, these puzzle pieces working, and then he's having to put in certain things to continue the rhyme, to continue them relating and interacting with each other, to have that ongoing relationship. And I think one way that we see that too is the beginning, where we transition, in between all of these stories, there's little transition chapters where all of the people are back together, these pilgrims are back together. And when they're on the boat, someone is murdered. And that's when it's time for Bron Lamia, the detective, to tell her story a mystery begins right then. And that's when her mystery tale begins at the same time in the midst of solving a mystery in their current hour. So I love these serious commitments to these genres and this serious commitment to keeping the tropes going and rhyming the tropes or interlocking the tropes as they should. So normally we don't really talk about books or we try not to talk about books that we haven't read together. But I think that the where we left off with, with Bob really gives us an opportunity to. You talked about formal constraints. You talked about kind of pastiche, different works. Yeah, let, let's, 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 let's explore what other books. What else is doing this? Let's explore. Yeah, yeah. Let's explore other books that have done this successfully or unsuccessfully. I'm thinking not of a book, but of a film, Pulp Fiction. Hmm. 
the you know the ultimate bricolage you know 90s you know mixing a few different genres together uh movie and it just seemed to be a very 90s thing actually then hmm. the 90s was a very distinctive cultural period i was re-watching old boy the other day and that's such a 90s movie like at one point he's hey. fighting and he's about to hit a guy in the head with a hammer and there's like a little arrow that goes yeah yeah and then boom i was just like watching it, like oh my god this is so corny yeah. And, you know, at the time, yeah. it must have been great. But, you know, now you look back on the 90s, it's so long ago now, you, it's just a steep thing. So, in a way, I'm tempted to say this is just, like, a real sort of late 80s, 90s thing to do. Uh, not to sort right. of, like, deflate the, the the bubble a little bit here. But maybe, you know, maybe I'm not giving it enough credit here. Well, Pulp Fiction does it successfully, and maybe Old Boy does it unsuccessfully. Right. In the realm of books, maybe I would point to, like, American Gods as, like, a... You know, we're gonna we're gonna put every god in a world together and see how they interact, despite how they don't really interact. And for me, that book was unbearable to read. Yeah, I, I put it I down. Did not like it. I did not finish it. Yeah, yeah. mainly because I felt like it didn't deliver on its promise mm. at all. Yeah. Which is, I, I'm so I don't know if I have anything like meaningful to say other than just to complain about not liking <laughs> American gods. But I do wonder why you read Hyperion and you intrinsically feel good you feel like it works you feel like it's a successful attempt at what it's doing i feel i'll need to think of some specific examples but the reason i the examples that i meant when things aren't working i think i'm thinking about being back in school and reading undergraduate work that people are turning in where it's like hey i've combined seven genres here you go and you read it and you think this is a big hot mess but he, in doing this pastiche, it's a logical pastiche, and it's not a pastiche without purpose. It's all going towards something, and it all feels interconnected. And the rhyme, it does rhyme, I feel like. The things do fit in their places, and they are actually interacting in a meaningful way. It's not just throwing things in. Maybe that's why Pulp Fiction works, too. It's Things are in yeah. there to tell a story and an effective, exciting story, not just to impress someone. Yeah, and I mean, each of these stories sort of, you know, is ostensibly from the beginning, the idea that we're all on this last pilgrimage to, the Shrike pilgrimage to Hyperion. We're not really sure why any of them are here, and why those people among all the volunteers have been selected. And the idea is that each story represents a piece of the puzzle that by the end we might be able to put together and, you know, make into one coherent whole. Even as we're told at the beginning that one of them is likely a spy, so going to give us misinformation. So from the beginning, we don't really expect that all of these pieces are going to fit together. But the way that they don't fit together would hopefully be, you know, revealing, you know, what what was, you know, what they're doing there in the first place. Anyway, so I guess maybe that's one reason why it doesn't feel like a gimmick because, you know, they all do give us more information on like that fundamental plot that's running through it that we get in between each of the stories of like their their, their pilgrimage. So maybe that's one reason it doesn't feel superfluous. I think secondly, it's just I don't know. I think a bit of a cop out to say, but it's just really well written. Like I think you can do it well or badly, but fundamentally the characters here are so rich and the stories are so engrossing that it's you know, the genre you know, there are loads of quips about genre and you know, loads of quips about history. Like I think the funniest one in this one is when they recreate Ezra Pound and they think, oh God, we've created a monster here. It's insane. But turns out Ezra Pound is just insane. They're, mon- they're you know, they're, yeah. they're being <laughs> perfectly accurate. But yeah, I don't know. I just think a cop out answer, it's just so well written that you can't not enjoy it. And these stories do serve a larger purpose within the sort of function of the narrative. Well, I think the two, the tropes are honored here. 
you know, the, when I don't like it is when tropes are thrown in just be, to be made fun of or to have cred yeah. in some way. And I feel like there was a tradition, not a tradition, a trend in the last few years, especially in the U.S. and on the West Coast, where people were saying genre is dead. And there's all of these people who wanted to write books and they just kept saying, I don't believe in genre. And they would say, I'm writing a mystery novel. They wouldn't actually write a mystery novel. There'd just be mystery elements and nothing would be properly explored and none of the tropes would be properly engaged. They'd just be thrown in and dismissed as something silly and funny. And yeah, it's like making fun of genre. It's like they watched Brick and they yes. said, oh, like Brick is good yeah. because it upends the genre. Yeah. So I'm going to write a mystery that, but, but like, but they, they don't. Like Brick participates in the genre mm -hmm. in order to tell the story and it's recognizable as a genre piece in that regard. But I feel like the post Brick mystery, yeah. you know, and we're kind of like fighting a straw man here, but you know, is to say like, well, I'm going to tell you it's a mystery, but it's not going to actually do it. Well, I mean, are we not it's literally not describing Ryan Johnson's later effort, Glass Onion? And Glass Onion yeah. is the paradigm of genre piece. It says, I'm going to do this genre, but. Oh, I'm too good to do this genre. Yes. I'm just going to yeah. give you a bunch yeah. of silly billionaires and oh, it's going to be a social. Oh, it's such an awful movie. I love Nice yeah. Out as well. Yeah, Last Onion was an absolute. Yeah. I got two minutes because in. It's like, oh, we're going to do an Agatha Christie movie, but we're not actually going to do anything right. And I'm going to be ironic and super like, yes. you know, the ironic is going to be a little bit So time, we're going like, to always try to yeah. surprise yeah. you uh, at the expense of everything yeah. else. So yeah, and you're right, Zach. We are fighting a straw man, so we should we should stop. But I think you've made the perfect point, John. What I don't like about it is when people take that ironic stance and think I'm higher than the genre, and the genre, the idea of genre is stupid. So I'm going to turn it in. You know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think there's also I kind of, I was interested in what you said earlier about this idea of like you know what's poetry without form. Mm -hmm. You know, I think in a way like what human life isn't a formless thing. We're all a bundle of tropes, really. <laughs> So I think the idea of being outside the genre seems a little silly. It's more just like, have you picked the right genre for that character? And I, I don't feel like it feels superfluous because there's no generic elements here that are here just for the sake of it. Like it always feels like it's serving the larger purpose of story and developing character. And that's what I mean. So, so when it says, well, listen, it's not character following plot. It's still somehow plot following character. No, none of the events seem arbitrary. Yeah. They don't strike you as being arbitrary. Yeah, Dan, I, the, the author seems to really care about things that are happening in this yeah. book. It's not, like you said, it's not like going outside of genre. That can be fun, I guess. But pretending you're above genre and looking down as if you know more than the people who are actually in there writing the genre. That feel, that puts yeah. a bad taste in my mouth. Yeah, and I, yeah. I think he's not too heavy with the whole genre thing. Like, Yeah, yeah it's not too heavy. This yeah. one is obviously like a cyberpunk hard-boiled tale. Yeah, sure. The first story, the priest tale, is just classic Lovecraftian horror yeah. but a lot of the stories like the priest tale and you know Cassard's tale I would argue as well are just the poet's tale they're not clear genres in and of themselves they're the characters are very much tropes but you know I would say aren't we all in a sense mm. tropes could yeah. we even begin to understand ourselves if there wasn't some kind of trope that we more or less fit in you know the idea of, of tropes not caricatures yeah yes yeah yeah, yeah, yeah exactly I think you know the idea of a, a person who evades all tropes is sort of a shrike-like thing. It's completely incomprehensible to us. But we can only understand each other by putting each other, but only understand things by categorizing them, putting them in certain boxes. That's necessary. So I think to avoid that, right above that, is kind of, I don't know, naive to me or silly. To come at this from like a narrative perspective, I do think that he, well, there's a sense in which we can't properly evaluate a story, or maybe like our brains refuse to properly evaluate a story until we know the ending. 
So I do wonder if by not actually ending any of these stories, <laughs> it's allowing us to give him the benefit of the doubt that it's blow us away. You know what I mean? Let's what's a let me scroll through. If the priest tale ended with a full explanation of the horror, mm. and it turned out that you know all these parasites need is just a dip in salt water. Mm. And and then they're gone. And then the human race is saved. You know, just like a really dumb ending, a really not well thought out ending. The, the kind that you would get from, you know, any classic pulpy horror tale. You know, if you got that, I think the whole project would unravel. But, and, but it's not that we get a good ending. It's that he doesn't even bother to write the ending. So we have to give him the benefit of the doubt that that it's that it's great. Well, it's you like know? the yeah. problem we've all had with it. Wonderful book, extremely fun book, fun, scary, great friendships, and then the end, terrible. Just awful. <laughs> Just awful. You explain everything yeah. away. If you explain it away. Yeah, yeah I think that's a great yeah. thing. You know, I think that's a great yeah. point, Bob. I think Stephen mm-hmm. King's it really is the ultimate reason why the book should not inclusive endings. <laughs> yeah. Be careful what you wish for, basically. I think we, I don't know, I feel like there's a contradictory thing that we get this in a lot in detective fiction as well of like, you want to know solution to the mystery once you know the solution to the mystery all the fun's gone you forget all about the book right so then mm, you need to go yeah. to another mystery book to get the mystery back but then that mystery gets solved and that's where you end up reading 50 you know viral books because you don't you know you want the answer but you don't really want the answer yeah and i think uh in a way Daniel yeah. simmons gives us what we want by like not giving us what we want you know not to be too sort of pithy with it i think that's speaking of agatha christie her the best book, I think everyone will say that her most exciting book is And Then There Were None, which is the one where no one ever solves it. Eventually, the, the bad guy confesses to you and sends a bottle with a note out to someone who maybe will find out the truth eventually, but it's the case no one could ever solve. That's good. I like that. See, that's that's a, that's a spin on a genre right mm. there that I can get behind. Not, you know, oh, here comes the straw man again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not... A glass onion. No, Brian Johnson's glass onion. Yeah. Everything that's wrong with genre movies is that movie. Lives Out, great movie. Glass Onion. Yeah, that, that's what's it. crazy about it. How mm. you get it so wrong after getting it so right on the previous occasion. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's his, it's Ryan Johnson's big day, you know, that Chance oh. the Rapper's album. Oh, yeah. You know, the one where he just like destroyed his own career. It wasn't that bad. I'm sure they'll give Ryan Johnson another chance somewhere. Yeah. Or Maybe they, in a Star Wars. they didn't Wars give Chance another but... chance, ironically, you know. Chance well, got no more chances. Yeah. Or at least he did get another chance and he blew, blew that one as well, I think. I think he released an EP and it was just I, rubbish. I don't think he's released anything since then. He might release an EP, I'm not sure. But yeah, I don't know. I probably just that That was like seven but... years ago, the big day now, right? That was a long time ago. Yeah, I, I specifically remember where I was when that came out and putting it on. I, must like, I don't think I liked it. <laughs> yeah. You put it on and you liked it. I said, I don't think I liked it. Oh, this. no, no. No, it's not good. <laughs> <laughs> oh god yeah alright <laughs> maybe it's time for us to wrap this yeah uh, we're just trashing things wrap this Christmas present yeah. up <laughs> wrap, wrap this glass onion up <laughs> sorry yeah, yeah. here you go alright talk to you later Bob. talk to you later John and Zach talk to you later Zach <laughs>